John, you want to come up? Good morning. I'm excited to be here, not just because this is a, another opportunity that we have to gather together as the family of God, open up his word and, and hear from him, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be here because of who you are. You are people that, that my wife and I have prayed for for over a year. Uh, in the fall of 2018, uh, the Johnsons told us that uh, they believed that God was calling them to move to Manunk. The first question that I had is, what in the world is Manunk? Um, and they, they, they explained how, how everything came about and conversations that they had been having with, with other local church leaders in the area. And uh, when, they, when they broke the news to us, there was this bittersweetness to it, right? Uh, a little background on our relationship. I met Eric about three months or so after I came to faith. Uh, I walked into his office and I gave him a giant hug. He had no idea who I was. I'm a raging extrovert by nature, and I like to touch people. And uh, so I ran in there, gave him a hug, and he, we spent the next hour, hour and a half, uh, I was sharing my story with him, and we were talking about baptism and what that looked like, and um, Eric was serving as, as the youth pastor in Crosspoint at the time, and I, and I didn't know when I walked into his office that um, a couple of years later he would marry my wife and I. I didn't know that uh, a couple of years down the road from that, that we'd be sharing an office together. Um, and I didn't know that, that, that a couple of years after that, I'd be at a church that the Lord called his family to, to start, along with other believers in the area, and, and share the word with you. And so um, this is encouraging. It's encouraging for me to be here. It's encouraging to, to hear the work that God is doing here, but it's even more encouraging to see it and to be a part of it and to see faces and to, and, and to not just hear names that Eric is sharing with me of, of launch team members and, and people who are coming and, and that, you know, they're meeting in a school and to, to hear how God is at work in, in, a, in a region that desperately needs the gospel. It's just encouraging. And so I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're, like, like Eric said, we're going to be in Mark 5. This is a weird story. Like, it's a weird story. Um, demons and angels it's strange to us maybe you're here and you know like like many people in the 21st century western world we've just kind of rationalized away the spiritual right i think it's it's really fun if you if you read books that are written by christians who who have died long ago you know books from the 1600s and even earlier there was just an enchantment about the world that was different right they didn't explain the the rain by using terms like evaporation you know like they just they just they just didn't have categories to think like that. There was an enchantment about creation that was, that was incredible, and there was an understanding of the world that was very spiritual. And uh, I, I, here's the thing. Demons are real. Angels are real. Um, angels do not, not look like cute babies with wings. Uh, they're, they're terrifying warrior-like creatures. And, and, and demons are, are, are fallen and rebellious angels. And, and here we see a very violent and chaotic interaction that Jesus has with a demon. But why does all of this matter? Have you ever been in a situation where you've been required to share your faith? And you've, you've just been totally gripped with fear. Maybe the idea of joining a church plant in a community that you knew little about absolutely terrified you. Maybe it still terrifies you. Maybe, when, when, maybe if you're in here and you're, you're, you're a believer and you're, you're involved and, and you get excited when new people come in the door, but there's also fear as you, you go to approach them and you don't know, like, are you going to be rejected? Are they going to accept you? Or are they going to be interested in talking to you? Or are they just going to push you away? Are they going to hold you at arm's length? Maybe you've been living at the same address for years and you've, you've yet to reach out to your neighbor. You've yet to invite them into your home. You're scared. Here, we live in an absolutely terrifying world. It's unpredictable, right? If you read statistics about how, how, how likely it is that you're gonna be in something like a fatal car accident, it is a miraculous grace of God that we were able to get here today safely. And somebody driving the other direction didn't just so happen to swerve into our lane and hit us, right? There, there's, just, there's just so many things in this world that are unpredictable. And, it, and, and when you think about it, it, it can get crushing, 
right? When we think about how challenging the task that we have before us in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to a lost and dying world, it can be crushing. We can be overwhelmed by the amount of work necessary to communicate good news to massive amounts of people who don't know Jesus. It can be crushing to know that there are billions of people around the world right now who have no hope. And if they do have hope, it's in an empty place. And they don't know. They don't know that that hope is in an empty place. And that person could not just be across the world. That person could be across your street. I'm very sorry about that. Life is troublesome. Maybe you're tired of being burned by the relationships around you. We feel every single day the weight of the fallenness of this world. Every day. Whether it's our own internal struggles, desires, and temptations, this inner pull that pulls us toward rebellion and gratifying these desires of sin that tear us away from a relationship and intimacy with the Lord. Or we feel it in the suffering we experience as as people reject us or hold us at arm's length or as we experience family tension or as we experience tension in the workplace when we're asked to do something that's just ethically wrong but we're afraid to lose our job so we we feel like we have to say yes to this this thing, whatever that is. Life is troublesome. And and maybe, if you're anything like me, I struggle with this cynical pessimism, Right? There can just be this hopelessness in us uh, where we can just be consistently discouraged and, and see the world as just something that's going to hell in a handbasket and, and we just, we just got to let it go. If, if, if any of that is, is you this morning, I, I want to give you some hope. I want to I give you some hope and, and lift you up to see the incredible power of Christ over evil the incredible power of Christ as king to come and establish his kingdom so that the paralyzing, defeated posture that you continually carry around with you can be eradicated by the power of the gospel. Your lack of motivation to walk with Christ, your lack of motivation to keep near to Christ can change. You see, it's often when we've taken our eyes off of the kingdom and what it's doing in this life that we often drift away from our Lord and Savior. We're forgetful people. And so I pray that this morning serves as a reminder for you. We're going to read the entirety of Mark 5. This is a, this is a story. One of the great things about stories is, is we can visualize what's going on. We can involve ourselves in the story. We can engage a little bit with the characters. And so what I want you to do is, is as we're reading, um, there's a character in the story that remains absolutely silent. If you were here two weeks ago, Eric talked about uh, the disciples going across the Sea of Galilee. They, were, they encountered this extremely chaotic and violent storm. And, and this is wh- where we pick up in Mark 5. They, they've gotten to the other side of the sea and they're getting off of the boat. But there's no mention of the disciples in the story. And so as we, as we read the story, I just want you to think about what it would be like to visualize and see this stuff as a disciple of Jesus, stepping off the boat into a region filled with your enemies, people you're in religious opposition against, and see Jesus interact with this crazy, demonically controlled man. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes, as soon As he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. 
The men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they begged, began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. This is an absolutely strange story. Think about this. Just, what? Jesus gets off the boat. This crazy, animalistically described man approaches him, bows at his feet, and starts yelling at him. What are you going to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Jesus starts, Jesus commands this this evil presence within this man to, to leave and asks their name. They identify themselves as, as a legion because it's not just one demon, but many that occupies and has taken up residence in this person. And Jesus gives them permission. What? He gives them permission. They have to ask Jesus' permission. Gives them permission. They go into 2,000 pigs, and 2,000 pigs drown themselves. It's an odd story. It's an odd story. I think it, it, you know, for, for those of us who've been following Jesus for any amount of time, it can be easy to just read through this and normalize it. But I think it's, it's helpful for us to just pause and recognize how strange this is. It's strange. What's the point? Why is Mark telling us this story? Well, when I came to faith back in 2012, I came to faith in drug and alcohol treatment. Um, I was in drug rehab, and uh, I knew absolutely nothing about what it meant to follow Jesus, much like this demon-possessed man who gets cleaned. Absolutely no idea what following Jesus meant. I knew that uh, once I was converted, I, I realized that there were some behaviors I just wouldn't be able to do anymore. Uh, I didn't really have a full picture of what that looked like, but uh, I just knew there were, there were things I was doing, things that I enjoyed, and that I needed to stop, that I needed to stop enjoying. Um, but I didn't actually have any sort of idea how much I would lose for the sake of Christ. As uh, people that I, that I knew and had partied with began to hear about what happened to me, uh, I started getting, and I had many, many conversations, especially in my first year following Jesus, of people uh, criticizing me and critiquing me and saying, like, what happened to you? What are you, what are you doing? I remember people calling me, a, a, you know, a fool and an idiot and, you know, not thinking rationally. Like, how could I believe that there was a God who was transforming me? What was going on? But then on the other side of the fence in the church, there were good Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming people who doubted my conversion who assumed that because of the nature of my story and who I was, that I was just going to flame out when life got hard and I would abandon the faith. And much like you, you read about in the parable of the sower just a few weeks ago, that, that I, would, I, would, I would spring up initially with joy, but because there was no root that grew deep when the, when, when the difficulties of this life came or when the temptations of this world came, I would, I would go and follow those and, and abandon the grace that I had been confronted with. And I'm not saying that, it's, that it, this was all bad, but it was discouraging for me because uh, uh, for, for a, a lot of things that were going on in my life, especially as a new believer, it felt like I was being rejected over here and rejected over here and I didn't know what lane I needed to walk in. But I had a problem. And I think we all share this problem. I think often when we think about being obedient in the hard areas of life, we focus more on what we lose than what we have to gain. We focus more on, on, on what we, what's at risk than what we stand to gain in Christ and our obedience to him. If we really believe, like really believe what the Bible has to say about the kingdom's coming, then we will not miss the riches of what we stand to gain in Christ. 
It's when we lose sight on the realities of the kingdom's coming that we drift and wander from the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus has come to invade the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God, and we see him confronting evil at its worst in Mark 5 and not moving. Jesus has put his stake in the ground and claimed this man for the sake of the kingdom and there is no power of hell that can stand against that claim. The king has come to bring the kingdom and that kingdom has absolutely no bounds. It has no limits. It has no fence that holds it in. Verse one gives us this amazing picture. When he, when, look, it says, going to the region of the Gerasenes, okay? This was, Jesus spent most of his time doing his ministry. If you think of the Sea of Galilee, he's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee uh, in, in a predominantly Jewish community, right? You guys have been reading about some of his interactions and his dealings up there. And then he goes across the sea to the other side of the sea to this, this region called the Gerasenes, which is in a greater region that you see later in the story called the Decapolis. The Decapolis means 10 cities. These are 10 pagan, wicked cities that are filled with idol worship. Filled with idol worship. And Jesus steps off the boat in enemy territory to claim this man as his own. This is the, this is the spiritual equivalent of D-Day. The disciples get onto the beach and the most heinous evil meets them right there. And they don't move. And with resolve, Christ rebukes the demon. And the demon has to obey this king. But in our current political climate, um, it's actually very, very easy for us. Many of you, you know, you might not have a a category in your mind or, or a way of thinking about Jew and Gentile and the hostility that's there. Right? It's hard for us to jump in a time capsule 2,000 years and try to understand the, the degree of, of political unrest and, and just how weighty Jesus' move to the, the other side of the sea actually was. But in our current political climate, we have a very, very similar thing going on. You see, if I was to begin, starting, begin, begin talking to you about immigration, I, that, just saying that word might make some of you uncomfortable, and that's Okay. That points to how politically charged, socially charged, that topic of conversation is. Right now, there is a lot of political and social unrest between American citizens and illegal immigrants. There's hostility. There's, it's a politically charged conversation. Many of you are, are, are probably waiting to see where in the world I'm going with this. I'm not going to talk about immigration. Don't worry. I just want to say it and make you uncomfortable because that's exactly a a picture of what's going on as these Jewish people step off of a boat into enemy territory. The relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish might be be, uh, difficult for us to understand, but when we think about our understanding of immigration in the United States and the conversation around that right now, uh, I can actually tell you the relationship between Jew and non-Jew is more charged. It was more difficult. The entire Jewish nation, think about this with me for a moment, the entire Jewish nation was under hostile Roman occupation. Roman soldiers would abuse Jewish citizens. You hear about this a little bit in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about retaliation. He says if someone asks you to carry their their armor one mile, go with them two miles. He's talking about a situation where a Jewish family might be at the Sea of Galilee having a picnic together and then all of a sudden a colonnade of Roman soldiers comes up, dumps their armor at the feet of this Jewish man and says, carry my armor for me. The Jewish man has no choice but to respond or go to prison. It's injustice. It's abuse. Not only that, but as the Romans occupy territory in Israel, they start charging the Israelites taxes. But the way that they do it is extremely just disgusting. What they do is they start taking Jewish people and turning them into Roman loyalists for the sake of a quick dollar. So for the promise of riches, they take Jewish people and they turn them into Roman loyalists so that they can begin charging taxes to their own people. But not only do they charge taxes to their own people, but they, they slap on a bunch of service charges so that they can pad their own pockets, so they can give the taxes that they needed to get, give to Rome and then collect the rest of the income for themselves. 
Jewish tax collectors were wealthy, wealthy people. The service charges were, were great. Injustice. And the people in the colonies, uh, when they started the Americans, thought taxation without representation was a bad thing. They should have read their Bible. Because the Jewish people were abused at a far greater degree than even the early American colonists. It's not comparing apple to apples to apples, but many Americans have a posture toward illegal immigrants that's very similar. My point in comparing the two is this. You, you may not be very familiar with the tension between Jew and Gentile, but many of you are very familiar with the tension between U.S. citizen and illegal immigrant. This is the reason why verse 1 is so remarkable. It just says where Jesus is going, but there's so much there. It's such a loaded statement that Mark is communicating to us. Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In this small verse, we see that the kingdom of God doesn't have any boundaries. It extends to all people, all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. It's not just for insiders. It's for outsiders. The good news is meant to be proclaimed and go out, not kept secret and remain with me. The progress of the kingdom of God moves past social boundaries. We see all of this in this passage, in this little verse. It moves past social boundaries, it moves past political boundaries, and it moves past religious boundaries. The gospel encroaches on our comfort and it causes us to encroach on the people that we disagree with around us to bring good news to them. When Christ declares you are his, he will go to the most filthy place to find you. He found me in rehab, desperately sick, desperately sick. This is good news for us because how often do we actually write off communicating the gospel to someone because we think they're, they're too far out of God's reach? Or, or we withhold, we stay quiet when we know we should communicate in places like work where, where religious talk is just politically unacceptable. Again, we're, we're focused too much on what we stand to lose rather than seeing what we, we gain. We just sang about what we gain. Why would we not want that for another person even if they are our enemies religiously, politically, socially? If the kingdom of God is really what the Bible declares it to be, it breaks into all areas of our lives and infiltrates its way into the places where Christians go. If you are a Christian... It is your call, it is your mission, it is the command of God for you to take the kingdom of God wherever it is you end up finding yourself today. And that is good news. Because that's the way that God designed the kingdom to infiltrate every corner of the earth. The kingdom of God has no boundaries. And part of the limitless reach of the kingdom is the fact that it's not of this world. Verses two through five give us a picture of the otherness of the kingdom, that it's, it's not anything that we conjured up or created, right? Verses two through five introduce us to this, this violently oppressed, demonic man. Jesus goes to an unclean place inhabited by unclean people, and he's met by an unclean spirit. And we find out later that it's not just an unclean spirit, it's thousands of unclean spirits, thousands Mark doesn't play games when, he, he, when it comes to communicating what Jesus is capable of. In, in the beginning of Mark's gospel, the first verse, he, he plays his hand, right? He says, this is the beginning of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he spends the rest of the story making his case that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And I always find it ironic that the first miracle Jesus does in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, is an exorcism. It's an exorcism. Why is it that there's an exorcism is the first thing that Jesus does in Mark's gospel that we see as a miracle, and then why does he do it again here? Why is there another confrontation with the demonic placed here? What significance does an exorcism have in light of trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God 
other than the fact that the demons know and testify that he's the son of God, which we see in both of these miracles. Right? In the story, it was just yesterday that Jesus was communicating the good news of the kingdom through many parables. Right? You have the, the parable of the sower. Right? You have the, 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 the parable of uh, where Jesus is talking about hiding your, 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 your light under a lamp. That's another parable. You have the parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed. He's talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He's teaching about it. And then what you see happen next in the story is a series of miracles that the parables give a commentary to. And you'll see this as the miracles play out um, later. Eric is gonna go into these, you know, especially next week. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna steal his thunder. But what you see is, is all of the parables that Jesus gives previously in Mark 4 act as a commentary for the miracles that you see in Mark 5 and late in Mark 4. And so two that come to mind for me, especially when it comes to this story, is the parable of the of the farmer that, that sows growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed. Here's why. In the parable of the farmer, and, the, and the, right, you remember the story, he casts out the seed and he goes to sleep and the seed just kind of grows. Like he doesn't do anything, it just grows. The, the, the inevitability of, of the kingdom's progress is what Jesus is getting to. That, that the kingdom will not be stopped, it will not be thwarted, it will grow regardless. The farmer goes to sleep, he doesn't do anything, he just throws seed and boop, there it is. But then the kingdom, the kingdom of God is not just like this, this growing seed that, that the, it will grow, it's going to grow no matter what anybody does or no matter what opposition the kingdom faces, but the kingdom of God is also like a mustard seed. It starts really insignificant and seems very small. And yet over time and through progress, it begins to blossom into this incredible tree that benefits and, and creates good for those around it. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It will not be stopped, and it will take a dramatic effect on the world. And what we see in Mark 5 is that the kingdom of God moves into the world by the Son's work and makes the kingdom of this world more and more like the kingdom of God as he expels evil from this world. This takes us back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, what happens? God creates two realms. He creates the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. One is inhabited by God and he has dominion over it. That's the heavenly. One's inhabited by humankind and God gives dominion to humans, right? Be fruitful, multiply, multiply, exercise dominion over the earth, rule and subdue it. These are things that God commands the first two humans to do. Well, then how did they do? Like next page in the Bible, they, they fail because they wanted more authority than that which was given to them. You see, the, the, the two original people failed in doing what God had called them to do. What did God call them to do? He called them to exercise their rule and their dominion over creation in a way that reflected the rule and the dominion of the creator. This is what it means for them to be made in the image of God. They're called to represent God to the creation. They were little idols that God made of himself in creation. Images that pointed to the creator. Their failure created a creation that was cursed by God. Right? Sin enters into the world and with it death. And that is what we see Jesus driving out in this passage. He's pushing back against the curse. He's pushing back against the curse of Genesis 3 and showing that he is the one who came to resolve the problem of sin and death once and for all. Jesus driving out demons is a signpost pointing to God's victorious kingdom and that that kingdom has come. What started as a small mustard seed of a promise in Genesis 3.15, when God promised that a descendant of Eve would come and crush the head of evil itself, the serpent's offspring. What started as a small mustard seed, a very vague promise, as you read the story of the Bible, blossoms into this amazing, beautiful story, which now we see Christ bringing and inaugurating as king of the kingdom when he comes to the earth. 
We have to understand that the story of the Bible is the story of God taking back his world from sin and death and evil. It's, it's a conquest of sorts that Jesus is on when he hits the scene in Mark 1. He's coming to establish his kingdom. He's coming to rule and reign and expel the evil powers and authorities that are currently ruling and reigning on the world. It's important for us to know the kingdom's otherness because we need to understand that the kingdom is not spread by our own power and effort. The kingdom is spread and guaranteed to spread by the power and effort of the king of kings and lord of lords. And just so you know, what he's doing right now is sitting down. He's sitting down until all of his enemies are placed under his feet as the church conquers creation itself through proclaiming the gospel. following Jesus is not a passive activity that we just get to participate in and consume the goodness that God has for us. It's not a religion that we, 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 that we, we sit still and just receive and let the blessings come down. The Christian religion is one of tenacious missional effort fueled by the power of the Spirit working in us because we cannot be stopped, the kingdom cannot be thwarted, and it has no bounds or limits. Mark gives us a, a, a terrifying description of this man, right? Just to go back to the text. He's bound with shackles and chains. He's got this super powerful strength. He can rip the chains off of himself. He's in agonizing pain, crying out night and day over and over and over and over again in torment and agony. So much agony that he takes comfort among living in dead places. He's living among dead. He takes comfort in that. That's where he goes for home and for rest. And he's cutting himself. This man is tormented. This is a graphic picture of, of something horrible happening in this man. And, and what we see Jesus do is we see Jesus go and move near him, be confronted by the great evil that's within him, and with a word, cast it away. The man is hopelessly disturbed and there's no power on earth able to sub subdue him. You see it over and over again. No one had the ability to subdue him. No one had the power. They tried to do this, it didn't work. There was no worldly power that could help this man. There was nothing on earth that could help this man until Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth steps off the boat in a region that he shouldn't have even been in to begin with to do something about this. Imagine the scene from the perspective of the disciples, right? Jesus calls them to go to a place that they've never known. He calls them to go to a place that, of, their, of their enemies. I'm pretty sure when Jesus said, get on the boat, he told the disciples where they're going. They're going to the other side of the sea. They know what's there. They've been avoiding it their entire lives. They don't want to go there. And not only that, but the road to get there was not very fun, was it? They were met by a chaotic and violent windstorm. The disciples were terrified, thought they were going to die. They, they, they go to their, their, their teacher and they're like, hey man, you, you brought us on this trip. Like, what's going on? We're going to die. Do you even care? You're sleeping right now. Jesus wakes up and with a word rebukes the wind. And the waves, and they stop, calm. And that morning they step out on the boat and they're met with a different kind of chaos. They're met with a different kind of unrest. They're met with a different kind of storm as a legion of demons runs toward Jesus, possessing a man and bows at his feet. Now that's really, really strange. I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily put demons in the category of bowing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? We think of demons as fighting against the king of kings and lord of lords. We think of demons as being in opposition against the king of kings and the lord of lords. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't communicate the struggle between good and evil as if evil has a chance. The Bible communicates the struggle between good and evil as evil's time is running short. That is why this demon runs toward Jesus. What are you going to do with me? Please don't torment me. Because the moment that the demon saw the Son of God step off that boat, he knew that the hourglass was turned and his time was running out. The King of Kings has come to claim his kingdom. And there is nothing in hell that can stop it. 
the kingdom has no boundaries and the kingdom is not of this world and that kingdom has a king. And that king has come and this demon or demons are helpless to change that. I think it's rather interesting that we see in the Bible that demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know. He is the son of God the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know that by two things. He says it and he represents that he knows exactly what that means by bowing at his feet. An army and legion of demons cannot stand in the way of Jesus. They can do nothing but bow and ask, what are you gonna do with me? What are you gonna do with me now? I think it's really, really interesting. They know who he is, but... but but we know who he is, right? Like, we know, we know Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he came to do, his purpose, his plan, what he's come to establish. We're talking about it right now. God's given us the word so we could know. So what's the difference between the demons knowing and our knowing? In fact, I would argue that the demons probably know Jesus a little bit better than we do. They recognized him immediately. They knew exactly what he came to do. What's the difference? I would say there's two things that are very, very different between the demons knowing and knowledge of God and our knowing and knowledge of God. The first is this, the the means of their knowing is different. The means of their knowing is different. Demons were created by God. They were were heavenly beings. They were angels who rebelled and turned against him. They've probably seen God. They've experienced God, right? These are eternal beings that were created to be in the presence of God and they, they rebelled, and we're cast out of his presence, cast down to the earth, right? Our means of knowing God is not sight and experience. Our means of knowing is faith. Faith. Demons do not have faith. They do not have confidence in God that compels them to action and obedience. Their experience of God has led them to fear and trembling. James, in James 1.19, talks about this sarcastically when he's correcting a church. He says, oh, you you believe that, that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They shudder. Psalm 66 says that God is so powerful that his enemies come cringing before him. We see one of his enemies cringing before him in, in Mark 5. So the means of our knowing is different, but also the ends of our knowing is different, right? We've, we've talked about the ends of the demons knowing, where it gets them. They know God, and it gets them to terror. We know God, and it gets us to worship. No demon rightly worships the king in such a way that it leads to devotion. They see and acknowledge the king in a way that leads to their terror because they know it means their doom and destruction. A good litmus test to the quality of your knowledge of God is thinking about where that knowledge takes you. Does your knowledge of God lead to pride and arrogance? Does your knowledge of God lead to fear and trembling? Or does your knowledge of God lead to humble worship as you adore the King of kings and Lord of lords who loved you and gave himself for you? How do we see this kingdom coming? Does it come weakly? Does it come strong? How is Jesus bringing forth the kingdom of God? It's it's, it's very, very different than how we would have written the story. That's for sure. It's it's, it's a little more subtle. You see, Jesus has come to subvert, subvert evil itself. He's come to remove the powers and the authorities of evil in creation. Jesus' coming drives out the powers of darkness from the earth. This is a work that subdues the powers of evil. Listen to these verses. The Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews writes about exactly what Jesus is doing when he casts this demon out. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's the enemy. The ruler of this world is the enemy. The spirit that's now working in the disobedient. We too 
all previously lived among them in, the, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. But God who is rich in mercy, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though you were dead in trespasses. You see this, this evil being subverted as the kingdom of God rules and the kingdom of this world is kicked aside by the power and the authority of the king himself. But read it again in Colossians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The author of Hebrews weighs in on this subject as well when he says in chapter two, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things. He's talking about why Jesus had to come as a man, why the Son of God had to come as a human being on the earth. And, and what does he say? That he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy what? People? Sin? No, not just sin. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be, become a man in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he did not just secure forgiveness of our individual sins. He did not just purchase the bride of Christ out of darkness and into light. There was cosmic redemption that was happening at the cross as the entire curse that, of Genesis 3 that was on creation began to be lifted as, as the curse is lifted and the powers of evil are laid powerless. Jesus' death and resurrection didn't just give us the opportunity to enjoy life with God individually. It didn't just purchase the church out of darkness corporately. It was cosmic humiliation and defeat as he disarmed every single evil power that had rule and reign and authority on the earth. The kingdom of God and its coming disarmed the powers of darkness in this life. So Jesus comes, this legion, okay? This legion of, uh, and, and the reason why we know it's a thousand is because a legion was a military term that was used in, in Roman society uh, for, for groups of soldiers that estimated around 6,000. So when you think of a legion of demons, think 6,000 is a safe estimate of what was going on inside of this man. 6,000 demons occupying this man bows at the feet of the king. The king rebukes them at a word. They go into 2,000 pigs, which illustrates how many demons were in them. These pigs are driven to death. Like, how in the world do you respond to this? The people who own the pigs were absolutely terrified. They run into town. They grab the crowds, which if you know anything about Mark's gospel, he loves talking about the crowds. The crowds come, and they beg Jesus to leave. In fact, the text says something really, really peculiar. It says this. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened, right? So the, 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 the people who were tending the pigs described to the crowd what had happened to the demon-possessed men and told them about the pigs. Just before that, right, after they tell them what happened, they beg Jesus to leave. But just before that, it says this. They came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed. And because they saw the man who had been demon-possessed, they, they were afraid. It's ironic. It's ironic that it, it seems to be that the crowd is more afraid of the man calm and in his right mind than, than when he had legions of demons in him. And they wanted absolutely nothing to do with this Jesus. 
And it serves us as a reminder that even though the kingdom cannot be stopped, it doesn't mean that the kingdom will not be rejected. And that doesn't stop our call to go to those who may reject us. You see, here's the thing about this story. This does not look like a a successful short-term missionary trip. Jesus didn't create revival in a pagan nation. He created opposition. Jesus went through, and the disciples went through, incredible amounts of difficulty just to get there. And when they get there, they get one convert. One convert. One man. Now, the, 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 the means of this man's salvation is nothing short of incredible, right? Like Jesus, the King of Kings, just with all the swag in the world, just rebukes 6,000 demons. It was like no problem. It's, it's incredible to think about. But one convert. Now, by our standards of success, typically in you know, America where we love big, great things and big, great events and lots and lots of people, this doesn't look like much of a win for the kingdom of God. But something happens, right? This man runs to Jesus and he says, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. No. I've got something better for you. Instead of coming with me, Go home. Go to the 10 cities, these wicked cities that are far from God, and and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them what the God of Israel has done for you. And the man went, and he told them what Jesus had done for him. And they were amazed. We have no idea what that means. We just know they're amazed. And that's okay. But the thing that bothered me the most as I was reading this story, and and if you don't want to be bothered and you don't want to be challenged in your Christian faith, I would encourage you not to read the Bible. The thing that bothered me the most about this story were the three beggars. There are three beggars in this story. There's a demon that begs Jesus for something. There's a crowd that begs Jesus for something. And the man who is cleansed by a demon begs Jesus for something. And I got angry when I read this story because I noticed something. When the demon begged Jesus for something, Jesus permitted it. When the crowd who rejected Jesus and told him to leave begged him to leave, Jesus said, yeah, okay. But when the man who wanted nothing to but be with Jesus begged him to be with Jesus, like such a reasonable request, he said no. Why? Why is it that Jesus said yes to the two requests of those that were opposed to him and denied the request of the one that wanted to be with him. Right, like that really messed with me. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And I thought about it and I thought about it. And just like anything in Mark's gospel or any gospel or any part of the Bible, there's no detail that's in there by accident. The author specifically uses the word begged over and over again to describe what these three characters do. And I realized something that I think each of us can learn from today. It talks about this in Romans 1 in detail, but we see an example of it in Mark chapter 5. Jesus has absolutely no problem with giving people who are far from them him what 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 they want. He has no problem giving people who are far from him what they want. Romans 1 tells us it's an expression of God's judgment in this life that he will deliver the wicked over to their own passions and desires. And what he does in this is he gives the demons and he gives these people exactly what they want and it's distance. They want distance and Jesus gives it to them. He doesn't force himself on them. But he also didn't use the potential rejection as an excuse to never go in the first place. You see that? He went. He got rejected. And then when they wanted distance, he gave it to them. It's very, very interesting. But I also think there's something that we can learn from this this man who begged to be with Jesus and and was told no. I think it's very true for us who, who know the Lord and follow him that when it comes to our life in Christ, we try to set the terms of our devotion. And rather than submitting to the king and yielding to his lordship, we tell him what to do. 
And we tell him where we want to go. And we tell him how we want him to work. And we tell him how we want him to, how he needs to do this and this and this and this, rather than just humbly coming to him and saying, Lord, I need you and, and I don't know what you want, but I'm willing to follow you, whatever you want. And the way this looks might be like this. You might have heard about this church plant. I can say this because I'm not the pastor. You might have heard about this church plant in your church. And, 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 and saw God calling you here for a season. And you said, you know what? We're going to come. We'll be here for six months and then we'll leave. But we'll come for six months and we'll engage and we'll be involved. And, and here's the thing. If that's you, that's awesome. Do it. But maybe God's calling you to stay. And the thought of that makes you absolutely uncomfortable. Maybe God's not just calling you to stay, but God's calling you to pack up your house and move to Monunk, which makes you feel really uncomfortable because you have kids and you don't like the school district. Do not set the terms for your obedience to the Lord. Submit to him. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that being here temporarily is evil. There's a time and a place for that. Paul the apostle was at churches temporarily. So we know it's okay. But, but are you really prayerfully wrestling with and asking God what he wants you to do? Or are you setting the terms to your obedience and clocking out? I think oftentimes we're more afraid than we think. And I think oftentimes uh, the reason why we are so quick to set the terms of our own devotion is because we're actually afraid of what God's going to ask us to do. And we're afraid how that's going to change things. But again, I would encourage you in that situation, are you focused on, on, on what you're losing or what you're gaining? And if that's you and you're, you're wrestling with whether or not you're truly yielding to the Lord... I want to remind you of something, just lovingly. The kingdom's come. It has no bounds. It's not of this world. Its king is ruling and reigning. His enemies are being put under his feet. The kingdom will subdue every evil power and authority that you and I know and rule over it. And that that kingdom demands a response. Do not sit silent because your silence is rejection, but instead fall on your face and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who no power or authority in this world can stand against. Will you go and tell others what the Lord has done for you? Let's pray. God, I talk too much. Forgive me for that. And yet, Lord, we know that, that your word has been opened and your word has been declared and proclaimed and we know that because of your promises that it will not return void. And so, God, may your word take up deep residence in our hearts and mess with us. May it mess with us in ways we don't want it to mess with us. May it, may it press up against the areas of our, of our heart that are in rebellion against you. And God, as we, as we go to the bread of the cup and the cup, this is just such a good way to respond what, what ways are we trying to control or dictate the terms of our own devotion, of our own allegiance, of our own obedience? God, call us to open our hands where they're closed. In Jesus' name, amen.